Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Major League Baseball has long reflected mainstream American society, sometimes metaphorically, but often in a very literal demographic fashion. Until 1947, black players were excluded from playing the game at the highest levels. So instead, black teams played in their own leagues across the country with a level of athletic excellence and entertainment that put the best of them on par or better than the major leagues. Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Paul McGowan. Howdy. And uh, it's springtime, Paul. You know what that means. Oh, I do. It's time for, uh, it's time for, uh, I, I, I don't have a joke. It's time for baseball. It's time for baseball. It's baseball season. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know. This time of year comes around. I figured this is, this is what I want to talk about this month. Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about uh, the Negro Leagues, which is, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's becoming a lot more well known in general than I feel like even 10 or 15 years ago. Not that people didn't know about it, but people are actually talking about the history of it a little more. But for a long time, it's a portion of, of baseball history that I think has uh, gone really overlooked and, and kind of underappreciated. So I thought it'd be a, a decent topic for uh, you and I to talk about a little bit. Yeah. Well, and it was only, I mean, we were just talking about how time has no meaning, but it was not, I mean, it was within the last year that major league baseball finally recognized all of the, all of those records, right? Because for a long time they weren't, they weren't official. They weren't an official part of major league history. So I, I, like, I think you're right. It is, you know, it is something that people are paying more attention to. Yeah. That's actually just December. So it has been uh, officially recognized at least by the the hall of fame for uh, all of five months now. Good job, baseball. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I don't want to say like there's still, you know, it's it's still uh, a league run by ancient old white men. But uh, yeah, yeah, maybe one day, maybe one day in the future it won't be. Maybe one day. Yeah. I mean, I guess a, a, just a note on on terminology. I'm, I'm going to be sticking to the names that these leagues used for themselves for the most part, um, a lot of which have gone out of fashion. Uh, that's just how these things have gone in American history. So yeah, obviously this isn't a, a title we would be giving uh, any of these leagues uh, today, but that's, that's how they refer to themselves. That's how they are noted in the, uh, in the records. So that's what we're going to call them today. So that's the way it is. Uh, let's go back to 1839, Paul. In 1839, it's my favorite year. Abner Doubleday invented baseball in Cooperstown, New York. And that's, that's where baseball started. There was no baseball before that. 
that's that's absolutely not true. That's apocryphal. But that's a story that was invented a couple of decades later, basically to prove the Americanness of baseball. There was a big debate at the time over whether baseball was invented in the United States of America or whether or not it was part of a lineage of games, basically through something called Rounders, uh, which is a British game. Today looks a lot like uh, softball, actually, but it, it had been played as as uh, early as the mid 18th century. And, you know, in a in a fit of patriotism, I suppose. <laughs> A lot of team owners uh, in the uh, in the latter half of the 19th century decided, no, it was invented by this one guy. It was invented in New York and it is as American as it comes, which I, I think. I mean, it kind of sounds like Mormonism as far as like a creation not, story. You're not like, wrong. It's the same state even. It's about the same time. But anyways, um, <laughs> You're very, very close. Uh, no, I, I, I mostly bring up this story because it's sort of like it's sort of quintessential baseball, especially in this era, in that it uh, tries to make it extremely American. Uh, it does a lot of gatekeeping and a lot of it's very like retroactive, trying to cram baseball into this idea of what uh, a bunch of team owners want it to be rather than what it actually is, which is a, a pretty democratic game all, all things considered right it's something that was popular in uh, the united states over you know say something like cricket specifically because you don't really need a lot of equipment to play it you need a stick and a ball and yeah. you know an empty field which abounds in the united states in the 19th century uh you don't have to have you know groomed bowling greens or, or pitches or whatever they call it in cricket i can never remember it, it, and it's relatively easy to set up you just need um, well, if you want a full team, you need 18 guys to play, but you can do it with less. And, and it's sort of a, a casual afternoon pastime sort of game. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, I'm probably jumping ahead. I do like I was, I was reading a little bit about 1800s baseball and it was, uh, sorry, I'm getting way ahead of myself. But one of the things that blew my mind was that in the 1800s, you had four strikes instead of three strikes. And it just blew my mind. Uh, momentarily. There, there's a bunch of rule changes that I was absolutely not planning on getting into today. <laughs> but it's it's interesting. I, I don't know. Baseball has always struck me as very like contradictory in that way where it's like on, on one end you get people who are like at the cutting edge of trying to push the game into more and more modern territory. And that, that exists through its entire history, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, in, installing uh, lighting in the 1930s so you can play night games or, you know, even up to modern day with just like sports technology trying to push the last couple of miles per hour out of, out of a pitch. And then like on the other hand, it's like so rooted in the past where, you know, it's the... I'm pretty sure the only professional sport where you have to wear a belt as part of part of the uniform, right? Like it's just, <laughs> it's really strange that way. It's always kind of fighting against itself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. In, uh, in 1857, the National Association of Baseball Players, baseball being separate at this point, by the way, uh, two separate words, is formed with uh, 16 teams in New York State. And that's really kind of the year that baseball sort of kicks off in popularity. And reading about these really early leagues is kind of interesting. The, the thing it reminded me most of, weirdly enough, is like, you know, the prototypical guy you know who plays Ultimate Frisbee. 
where it's just like a lot of like it's a lot of like city leagues right like it's a lot of yeah. uh, amateurs who are playing this after work often on a team that's part of you know their their co-workers um you know occasionally you'll get a sponsorship occasionally you'll get maybe a a, a tournament within the city that might even be worth a little bit of money for the winner but it's all done on like a very amateur basis this is just a fun thing to do on weekends and evenings it takes a while for uh, professionalism to come into the game, but it's it's not it's not as long as you might uh, think. Um, that that association's formed 1857, uh, 1869. The first salaried professional team uh, starts. That's the Cincinnati Cincinnati Red Stockings. I love it. They're the uh, yeah they're the first professional team. They're actually play, paid to play the game. And it's funny what a little bit of sponsorship money will get you. They they went 57-0 and 0 their first season. Get out of town. I mean, no. You know what? Knowing what I know about early baseball, I, I believe it. The, the funny thing about early baseball is that, like, a lot of the scores are very, very, very high because the fielding was so bad. I, I'm trying to, like, stay away too much from, like, too much of the sports stuff. But, like, it's it's so interesting to me. Like, what's what would you call, like, a regular baseball score today? Like, what would be a score you'd be absolutely unsurprised to see an MLB team put up? Uh, yeah, like, 7-5 or, like, 6-3, to three, somewhere around there, I would guess, is probably average. Yeah, I had I had 5-3 in my head. Um, you know, they can go a little bit higher for sure, definitely. No, there's all these games back then that are, like, 44-12. to 12, And... A lot of it is the like these guys weren't wearing like they weren't wearing baseball gloves. Baseball gloves don't become a thing until basically the 1890s. Um, they're catching barehanded and they're doing it badly. So it's it's very much like a runner's game. Like it's not it's not people swinging for the fences here. Okay, okay. So speaking of old baseball gloves, mm. I played in a uh, a baseball league in Kitchener for a bunch of years. And there was this guy who one week showed up. I mean, all credit to him. He was one of the best players in, in the league. And he had like an old timey, uh, I think it might've been like a Cincinnati Reds uniform. And he had a, a glove that was straight out of like the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was like, and, and we were like, dude, you're going to play in that. And he was like, oh yeah. He's like, it's, he's like, there's really no difference. And again, it's like this like three fingered mitt, like no webbing in between, <laughs> but he's so confident and he has, he's playing like left field or something. And the first three balls hit to him are just, are just marshmallows, just like floating up there forever. And he drops all three and he came off after that <laughs> inning and just like threw the glove on the ground. He's like, yeah, okay. No more of that. Yeah, that's hilarious. It was great that he tried, but it was clearly like, yeah, okay, like, like yeah, we've made some, we've, we've grown by leaps and bounds when it comes to baseball gloves, and let's, like, let's not go back. Let's not go back. Yeah, yeah. The original one, I, I won't remember the player, but it was actually a catcher who was like injured because like catchers would get just beat up, right? And the the glove was supposed to be like for a medical injury, and then he's like, hey, wait, my hands don't hurt all the time. And it goes from there. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know what, just, just quickly, like I, I, I knew that guys played without gloves for a time. I, it did not occur to me somehow just how painful it would be. Yeah. To play catcher without a mitt. That's yeah. Hard to imagine. Yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. So, anyways, let's let's get back on to let's get back on track here. 
1857, this Players Association is founded. 1867, only 10 years later, they officially put in rules banning or barring rather black players from joining the association and teams fielding black players from right. uh, being part of any of their leagues. It is very, very early baked into baseball. A lot of these teams would be like we like we said, kind of kind of almost beer league. Uh, you, you, I suppose you would call them, but you'd get semi-professional ones start coming up and um, very quickly a, a culture of barnstorming comes up. Are you familiar with barnstorming? You want to give a quick rundown of what that means? Uh, I believe uh, it's going to be incomplete, but I think barnstorming was just like you would be a team and I don't know, you would like do a tour of, I don't know, like like some state like New York or Pennsylvania and you would just like you would just go into a town and you would like challenge the local team. Is that close? Yeah, essentially. And, and the idea was that like a lot of times with barnstorming, you would either be like a relatively famous team that people would have maybe read about in the newspaper, but you know, it's the 1860s or whatever. They don't have TV or whatever. They're not going to a game necessarily unless they can really afford to take the time off. And games right. are really only played in the daytime. So there are limited opportunities for games. So, you know, you'd find out that this famous team is coming through nearby and it's an opportunity to go see them play in your local sandlot and just trounce the guys that you know locally play some, you know, okay ball. Either that or it would be a team that would have some sort of extra like entertainment value to what they're offering here. Like they'd be playing like entertaining baseball of some sort. They'd be doing tricks. They'd be doing banter while they do it. Think very like Harlem Globetrotters, right? Like that's I that's cannot picture the baseball equivalent of that but uh okay well, all right l- less about the trick shots more about the like the entertainment value right like they're not there to just put up numbers they're there to put on show yeah okay um and yeah i mean the the tricks that you're you're seeing especially with black players later on is like th- there's a lot of like each one of them would have like a trick that they would do, which sounds kind of silly, but like, you know, they, there'd be like the guy who like backflips onto home plate when he runs in or whatever, or, you know, <laughs> there, there is a story I saw about some guy who like cartwheeled all the way around the bases, which like, okay, sure. Why not? It's not fast, like, but like, uh, yeah, no. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, Another really uh, uh, popular feature of, of uh, specifically black uh, barnstorming teams was something called coaching, which would basically be all the guys from the dugouts yelling stuff out either to their own teams to encourage them or like razzing the enemy, the, the opponent teams, um, just like insulting them mercilessly. But like, OK, that I like that. I like a lot with like a humorous twist to it. Right. So, yeah, it was right, called, it was right, called right. coaching. But like in a lot of ways, it had sort of a. Like almost a, a minstrel show vibe to it. Like they tended to very much like play into black entertainer stereotypes because a lot of the times the uh, the audiences that are coming to these games are white, and there's this sense that the people who are coming are going to like need a reason to go see uh, black players play. And this was something that would like right. differentiate them from uh, the white teams they were used to seeing. Right. And, and, and is that is that something? Was it only black teams that would do like the antics that would have like a bit when they went in and, and, and played another team? It was a lot more prevalent. There were a couple of white teams that would try it, but like they weren't they couldn't pull it off as well, I guess. Like they, they kind of it ended up being very much like a, a, a black team uh, feature uh, as, as, right. as time goes on. A big reason that I wanted to talk about 
specifically Negro League baseball is that like is that it kind of sums up like a, a big part of like the American experience in the 1860s through 1940s, right? Specifically for for Black Americans, because a lot of the things that develop through these leagues is also very much mirroring what Black Americans were going through at this point in time. So you know this this ban on on black players comes just two years after the Civil War ends in 1865, right? And this era after the Civil War is known as the Reconstruction Era. It's one of those ones that, like, again, I, I don't know how much it gets talked about, and I certainly don't think it gets talked about um, as much as it necessarily deserves, because what you really see in the United States is, up until the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, there's a big political will towards strong reform in, in the South, right, after the after the Civil War. Right. When when he's assassinated, there's a, a massive cooling off on that. And, you know, there's attempts being made at repairing civil rights, but there's also a very strong political will towards like just kind of putting the whole thing behind us, uh, if if you will very much trying to sort of move past the civil war and if some you know repairs need to be made at the cost of you know certain concessions to southern states this is seen as occasionally acceptable but you do get this window uh in the 1860s and 70s of uh, really strong attempts to integrate former slaves into american society on a somewhat uh equal basis you know you've got constitutional amendments being made, right? The uh, 14th Amendment in, the, in 1868 guarantees equal protection under law. So you start seeing black businessmen kind of come up, black political leaders trying to lead some of that charge towards equality. In 1867, there's this team created called the uh, Philadelphia Pythians, which is a mouthful, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Wait, sorry. Say that, say that team name again. The Philadelphia Pythians. Yeah. Um, anyways, they tried in 1867 to join um, the Baseball Players Association and were rejected um, as part of this banning black uh, players. It was their application that that triggers this ban. And it's interesting because, like, not only are they the first, like, semi-professional team, they're very good at baseball, like, they're playing really good ball. But they're also founded by two community leaders in Philadelphia, uh, black community leaders, Jacob C. White Jr. and Octavius Caddo, who are, you know, they're they're putting together a baseball team. They're trying to play, play them against uh, white teams. It's very much like a political act to play against white teams. You know, we can play baseball as well as you. But they're also getting involved in local politics, trying to uh, drag down some of the segregation laws that... Uh, uh, existed at the time. And the the team has a very like short history, you know, only a few years, but it's, it's very much uh, reflective of that, like attempt to, you know, directly post-war where it's kind of like, oh, we can actually build something new here. We can actually uh, attempt to move forward from all of this. Right. In 1870, the 15th Amendment is passed. That's the one that protects uh, the right, uh, an equal right to vote for all U.S. citizens. Um, again, specifically aimed at some of the uh, laws put in place against black people in the United States. And as a more or less direct result of this uh, political victory, Octavius Caddo is actually uh, assassinated in 1871 by political opponents who who believed that black people in the United States did not, in fact, 
deserve the right to vote. The team folds as a result. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, this is like a very like neat little analogy, right? This this kind of hopeful little moment of maybe we can play the same level of of baseball as as white folks uh, gets cut, you know, tragically short um, with this this act of like very overtly political violence. You know, Negro League baseball is not is very explicitly. Uh, not divorced from politics as as you know most sports is kind of unable to do like it's it's interesting the the modern fascination with with apolitical sport right because there's nothing kind of more political than this idea of the direct you know tying of of voting rights for uh, black Americans to their ability to participate in sport at the same level as white Americans. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's something very succinct about that whole arrangement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, and I, and I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I remember reading about, and maybe, maybe this was only like the, the 1880s, but there were barnstorming teams, um, that would try to play in, in places like Louisiana and, and were, you know, team management was written letters saying, if you allow black players on the field in whatever town it was, you know, there, there will be blood on the field. And, and it was not like not at all veiled threats to, to not play in certain places. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's going to be, that's going to be common, uh, basically throughout the entire, uh, well, the, the entire discussion we're going to have today. This is this is not uncommon. I saw articles from the 1920s where Negro League games were delayed by more than an hour by the Klan, like who were there to protest. And it's 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 a little bit wild. Like you know, let them play some ball. But it, again, you you can't you can't separate those two things out when you're talking about. Uh, the 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 segregation that exists in the U.S. under under Jim Crow law, right? Yeah. In eighteen seventy six, the National League is founded. This is the first professional or the oldest uh, professional league that still survives. There were other professional leagues though. the The National League was founded with eight teams, and uh, they held on to that players' association uh, prohibition on black players. Some of those other professional teams allowed it. One of the earliest. Uh, players to play uh, one of the earliest black players to play professional ball was Moses Walker Moses Fleetwood Walker who was also known as Fleet um they all have very good names by the way I love the names in baseball that that continues to this day but there's something special about a baseball name man oh yeah oh yeah so Moses and his brother uh, Welde both played uh professional ball in 1884 but Again, it, it was kind of in this window of time where racial tensions in the United States are really mounting. Southern states are really pushing back against some of the civil rights that are put in place. There's legislation that's attempted to be put in to protect civil rights. You know, there's a there's a Civil Rights Act put in the 1870s that just doesn't have enough teeth. But like by the time you get to the 1890s, there's this very hard, unspoken, but kind of insurmountable color line drawn in baseball uh in the major leagues so i have a question yeah um uh, because i because uh yeah i have this book called uh i think it's called only the ball was white and, and yeah. yeah so so i've read as far as moses walker um and i know that he played professionally in like the american association or something yeah 
is he is he not credited with breaking the color barrier because he played in the American Association, which is now defunct, or or is it because, as you said, like the restrictions kind of kind of tightened after he made that debut? It's more the latter, I would say. It's the fact that the okay. the, the restrictions come into place in force in the 1890s. Specifically, there's an inciting event actually in 1887. The uh, the Chicago White Stockings, who by the way are not. They're not going to become the Chicago White Sox. Uh, they're going to become the Chicago Cubs. That's not right. No, it's right. I, I triple checked this. No, baseball no, team no, names. No, but it's not. No, but karmically, it's not right. Like, <laughs> uh, wrong, just... wrong league. Wrong league, right? Yeah. White Sox are, are American League. No, this is only National League exists at this point. Yeah, I know. No, the White Sox. Like it. The, the White Sox are named after the White Stockings, but the White Stockings are going to become the Cubs. Yeah, this this happens a number of times. Keep in mind the Cincinnati Red Stockings are not the Cincinnati Reds. No, I thought they were. <laughs> no, they're not. Oh come on! I, I I'm trying to remember where they ended up. They might have ended up being Boston Red Sox. I could be wrong though. Uh, don't quote me on that one. Anyways, okay, all right. Baseball teams moving around. It. it it's it's a whole mess. Don't assume anything. Um, anyways, in 1887, White Stockings owner Cap Anson marches his team onto the field and declares that he is not going to play the New York Giants if they don't remove Moses Walker from uh, from their roster. So Fleet Walker being there is basically a non-starter for him. He says if he's on the roster, we do not play. And the owner of the New York Giants basically folded. He complied. He said, fine, we won't play him and removed him from the roster, which just if 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 I can and and, and maybe I'm out of line here and I hope that I'm not. But no, I go ahead. from what I remember reading about Moses Walker is he was he was just an OK player. And I know that this is all about politics anyways and mm-hmm. and, you know, race relations in the States. But it's it's just so funny that like you would you would take a stand over a guy who was really not that good of a ball player. Yeah, well, and I think it highlights the fact that it is political so much. And I mean, when this goes down, right, like Anson doesn't make any bones about why he doesn't want Fleet Walker playing. This is this is because he's black. He does not want his players playing yeah. with him. And, you know, ball backs down and they quietly slip in a provision in that same year where the owners all vote in secret to deny any future contracts to black players. Some of them are absolutely, and it's one of those things where it's like, well, what's the motivation here? And yeah, some of it is, is blatant racism. Some of it is this idea of, well, this is what the players are going to want to see, right? Like we don't want to cause problems. This is an entertainment product. And there's this idea that already in the 1880s that Americans have this idea of what baseball is and more importantly, what baseball isn't. And these owners are under the impression that like their audiences, by which they mean white audiences, don't want to see black people playing ball. Right. And so it's this mix of different things happening there, which is, you know kind of again a microcosm of how things tighten up in this era of of race relations in the united states right things on the political end settle in 
a few years later in 1896 with uh, the Plessy versus Ferguson uh, decision, which most people know from the very famous like separate but equal ruling, right? They're ruling against that 14th Amendment we talked about earlier, the one that says, you know, equal civil rights for all, is that, you know, as long as things are equal, it's okay for them to be separated, effectively enshrining segregation in a Supreme Court decision. Right. It's kind of at this point where, like, we would count the beginning of, well, not even the beginning, you could count it earlier, but this is like the the enshrinement of, of Jim Crow laws in the United States. This idea that, you know, yeah, you have your separate drinking fountains. Yeah, you have to sit in different parts of the bus. Yeah, you need different swimming pools. And yes, you need different sports fields. And it doesn't matter that they're not as good as the white ones as long as you have one. Man. Who knew ball could be so political? Right. I mean, it like all of it, it's funny, right? I keep catching myself and it's like, no, it makes it, it makes sense for, you know, um, where we are in history. But uh, sure. But yeah, it's I don't know. It's always like every time every time I do this podcast with you, it's like it's just a, it's always a reminder of of just how uh, archaic some of these things were. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Um you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing, um, sports specifically and its relationship to, uh, segregation laws in the United States, because in a lot of ways that is going to be, uh, and again, we're talking about jumping ahead, but that's going to be the forefront of challenges against Plessy versus Ferguson. Right. And I'm not just talking about professional sports, but I'm also talking about things like, uh, access to parks. I'm talking about things like access to pools. It's like specifically in that leisure space, that a lot of the challenges start being made against these separate but equal laws. You know, you would think that it would be about voting rights or you'd think it would be about employment, but it turns out that it's it's the way that people use their leisure that that tends to be I suppose hardest to justify in certain ways. And that's a that's a horrible way of putting it, but you know, it it, it becomes um, really hard for judges to ignore the inherent inequity of separate f- facilities when it's something as sort of simple as a, as a baseball field. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's really interesting how how much of that civil rights movement is is pushed on those fronts, though. Let's get back to old baseball. <laughs> In 1885, three different clubs uh, merged to form a baseball team known as the Cuban Giants, uh, originally formed from a team of black waiters who played ball on their off time. Also, just quick, quick side note, um, uh, having read some baseball history, the number of teams called the Giants is on unreconcilable like they're like everybody and their brother had a team named the giants and i don't know why there wasn't some degree of creativity in naming these teams but anyways. Well, they're, they're actually all being named after the cuban giants really yeah the cuban giants loom that large in black baseball history they the well we'll we'll get into some of it as we go no don't don't worry the listeners will also okay. be subjected to the, the the vast number of giants teams um i really hope you have a list because it's oh, ridiculous i'm going to try to keep track of this i apologize in advance so the cuban <laughs> giants 
they they hire some semi-pro players from a couple other teams in the area and they decide to kind of take this show on the road by the way none of them are cuban this is being done because cuba is just like very popular in the 1880s uh it's also uh, in the united states we're kind of just before the like cuban um like the spanish-american war so relations with cuba are very very friendly right now it's very like cool to be cuban i suppose okay they're also kind of hoping that maybe by naming it the Cuban Giants, people will be a little bit confused as to like their background and be a little bit more open to um, a team that they think might be uh, of Cuban origin rather than black. So there's a little bit of marketing goes into this. That is an interesting, an interesting play. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's hmm, what am I trying to say here? It's interesting who gets uh, classified as uh, black or white in this schema, you know, we'll, we'll run into places. That's, that's where my head was at too. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, it, it's, it, it will, we'll run into players later who are Latino, who are fine to play in white leagues. We'll run into, there's no issue with, um, uh, with native American players in the major leagues. There's no prohibition against it. We'll see people try to sneak black players into major leagues. Actually, at one point, uh, there's a, there's a player named Charlie Grant, uh, who nearly breaks the color barrier in 1901, uh, for the Baltimore Orioles. He's such a good player that the, that the, the owner wants him on the team, but they think, well, maybe he's light skinned enough that we can pass him off as Cherokee, which would be fine. And they, they try, they tell him, that he has to call himself uh, Chief Tokahama and tell everybody that he's Cherokee. But the first game that he's going out to play, all of his buddies show up in the stands and they're cheering. And it's like, yep, that's our boy, Charlie Grant, finally making it into the white leagues. And it, it blows the secret. And so he can't play for them. I mean, that's really funny. It's really funny. <laughs> it's also <laughs> it's also so twisted. Like, what what does that oh, matter? It's, oh, it's... Like, it's yeah. Anyways, the Cuban Giants are managed by uh, a black man named Costa Govern, who ha actually had experience barnstorming in Cuba. So the, the link to Cuba is not completely crazy. Um, and baseball teams have been touring Cuba since like the 1870s. It had been going on for a while. There's kind of a, a popular conception that that's that comes out of the the Spanish-American War, but it had been going on for some time. Cuba's been playing baseball for a long time. So the manager is black, but the owner is a, a white guy named Walter Cook, and he really saw the Cuban Giants as a business opportunity, right? So he made sure that they had a field that they could play out of in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, and the two of them working together, Cook and Govern, sort of established this mixed model of exhibition games, small tournaments, and barnstorming that turns into a profitable business model. And this is going to become sort of the model for black teams for the next couple of decades, really. Um, so yeah, you would have basically three types of games going on at any given time and you could be playing all three in three you know separate days one would be sort of a, a like an intercity league something with like a fairly regular schedule so that you could build up a local fan base the second one would be uh, exhibition games against big teams from other cities so you would offer to go in um, and play like a, a you know a minor league level team and this was seen as sort of like an opportunity to 
get that team some practice against some pretty decent players without actually having to get another minor league level team in. But for the Cuban Giants, it's an opportunity to, again, play against white teams and uh, prove that they are capable of holding their own. And they consistently right. were like they, they performed quite well in those. And then the third the third version would be, again, barnstorming. So these sort of almost pseudo vaudevillian baseball acts that were extraordinarily popular. People loved these things. But you just tour around, challenge the local team to a game just trounce them and be as entertaining as possible while doing it. They occasionally played some major league teams in exhibitions and again, occasionally won. Like they were, they were doing pretty well considering they were not a completely professional team. Like they were, they were mainly paying their guys off of a cut of ticket sales. So the more people they could draw in, uh, the more uh, money any of these players would make. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised that the players were paid anything at all back then to be honest yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where like they were still working um like they would still have to work other jobs but they would um find jobs that they could kind of duck in and out of fairly easily to go and play because they did make some money off of ball and i mean a lot of these guys are playing because they love it not because they're making massive salaries right like it is yeah. kind of feast or famine it depends on how many people come out but uh they are they are making some money the other person that's making money is the owner uh he's he's actually doing okay but uh cook comes uh down with a kind of unspecified illness in 1887 and he ends up uh, uh selling the team shortly before he uh dies sells the team to a guy named jm bright and Bright isn't nearly as well liked as Cook. Cook made sure that his guys were taken care of. Um, Bright was interested in two things, making as much money as possible and getting them into some sort of professional or semi-professional league. And in 1888, he was part of trying to found a four-team, uh, what they called colored championship of the world, which is, um, you know, they were, they were kind of trying to go for like a tournament style uh, setup. Um, by 1888, they had a couple of other black teams that were somewhat competitive against them. Like they could sort of hold their own. Uh, the main one being the the New York Gorums. So put together a little tournament, brought up a team from the South that was apparently just terrible. Uh, tried to drum up some like, you know, publicity for this match. Kind of like a, you know, World Series-ish sort of thing. Although that's not really a, uh, a thing yet. Um but th this uh, this meeting, what it basically shows the Giants players is that they have other options for other teams. And they realize very quickly, especially with Bright being kind of a cheapskate, that they can leverage some of their skill against uh, better offers from other teams. I have kind of an unfair question. Sure. Um, which is, so, so you mentioned the, 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 the Giants are being paid of the, like, of these black semi-professional teams um i don't know like like how many of these guys were actually getting paid like how many options would they have had you mean on the giants specifically or well no, i know like 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 across the country yeah oh, yeah yeah there's there's about there's these four other teams basically that are playing semi-professionally but the thing is the gorums and, are and and that's it pretty much yeah i mean lots of other lots of other black teams out there but mostly at a very like amateur 
uh, uh, right. Okay. Level, right. It's not, it's not something that you're getting paid. The fact that these other teams come in and they are paying at all is what starts giving them the options because the Gorham owners realize that like, well, I don't have to pay everybody a ton, but you know, I can poach their star pitcher, pay him a bunch more and I'm going to start winning more games and that's going to draw more crowds. None of the contracts are regulated in any way, shape, or form, right? Because they're not actually in any sort of league. There's no players association. None of that stuff that in Major League Baseball would sort of help with some of that poaching stuff. It's just the Wild West out there. Yeah. In 1889, they, the, the Giants, that is, uh, as well as the Gorums, managed to enter into a, a league called the Middle States League. That league lasts exactly one year. The Giants go 103 for 129 that year. Wait, sorry, wait. Say that again? They won 103 out of 129 games. That's amazing. It's wild. The stats from this era, just just absolutely insane. But again, these options do exist and they start kind of drawing away uh, major players. And in 1890, there's like a full team revolt. Basically, all of them leave uh, to play with other teams. Bright basically won't be able to hang on to a team for more than a year uh, after this point. And in 1893, he won't be able to put together a Giants team at all. Basically, because he's a cheapskate. Right. The mid 1890s, though, sees like a new crop of black teams that start coming up, mostly named the Giants, uh, all of whom are like inspired by this performance of the Cuban Giants. Right. So you get the Page Fence Giants who are sponsored by Page Fence, um, which is very like, you know, me playing softball at age nine. sponsored by like the local like hardware store or whatever um the page fence giants were they were also sponsored by like a a bicycle shop and their whole thing was they would take the the train car into town they would park the the train just outside of town and they would all ride their bikes into town and 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 get the whole town following them on their bikes and then lead them to the to the baseball field which sounds like a lot of fun yeah and well, you know what? It's honestly not bad because like I, I, I also read stories about teams, uh, barnstorming teams in, in the late 1800s who would you would try to cram like 18 guys on a team into two cars and try to or not two cars, I guess, but like two two coaches and like try to and try to get to your destination. And just I can't like I oh, can't yeah. picture that many people crammed together. No, it was it was not. They were not being treated. They're not staying in five-star hotels here. Um, that being said, these as bad as those trains were, um, they kind of serve a dual purpose, which is they also give the guys a place to stay when they're barnstorming because in a lot of places, hotels won't take them. Right. So it literally just gives them a place to sleep. Right. So, yeah, you've got the Page Fence Giants. You've got the Chicago Unions who are... Uh, funded by the like labor unions in Chicago. Don't worry, later they'll become the Union Giants. Um, in 1896, uh, a businessman named E.B. Lamar poaches the entire Cuban Giants team. He takes every single player, and he builds a new team, and he names them the Cuban X Giants. The letter X. His argument is that the team name Cuban X Giants is not incorporated and therefore it's free for the taking. And if somebody gets confused between the Cuban X Giants and the Cuban Giants, well, that's on them. They've still paid the ticket price. Okay, that's a pretty great storyline, though. 
I mean, that's why he's he's like, I'm just going to I'm just going to round up this team that used to play together and get every single dude. I love that. Bright is incensed. He is so mad. He puts together another team and he makes it his mission to take down the Cuban X Giants to add oh to the my confusion. God, this, is, this is a movie to add to the confusion, though. He stops calling them the Cuban Giants and starts calling them alternatingly, depending on the time, either the original Cuban Giants or the genuine Cuban Giants, which does not Ooh, sound that just sounds more, like a cheap knockoff brand. No, it doesn't sound no. better than just the Cuban Giants. I might no. take the Cuban X Giants at that point. No, I you would. Yeah, I would. I would definitely take the Cuban X Giants. I'm base, basing that on name alone. Yeah, 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 for sure. Cuban X Giants become like a, a famous team in their own right. They have a, a an outstanding record. Play really good ball. By the time you get to the turn of the century, you start seeing, you know more and more financial success from these pro or semi-pro teams you see low owner control you see a lot of like jumping ship for players players would alternate teams number of times through the through the season because they have no real contract to speak of you'd see multiple championship titles that people were trying to put together they're really trying to make something out of it but there isn't like that top-down oversight like you have in major league ball right right booking also continues to be a problem in that it's hard to find places for black teams to play. There are a lot of field owners who aren't willing to let black teams use their fields, no matter the cost. Right. And is that, I mean, I assume, I assume that if you're a black semi-professional team, you're mostly playing in the Northern States. Yeah. Yeah. Almost exclusively. A lot of these teams won't have a home field at all. Uh, A few do the Cuban giants did, but like, a lot of times they're playing exclusively as an away team because they can't afford to build their own field. And because it turns out it's kind of hard to draw a crowd in this era as a black team, as a home team. Right. Usually because there's a much bigger major league team somewhere nearby that people consider their like their own team. Right. This booking problem is something that businessmen, Nathaniel Calvin, uh, Nat Strong, uh, sees as a bit of an opportunity. Nat Strong was a sporting goods salesman who happened to have a personal connection with a guy named Andrew Friedman, who was the owner of the New York Giants. This is the modern-day San Francisco Giants. They'll move out to the West Coast uh, during expansion. Um, But they owned a bunch of professional grade uh, uh, fields that could be used. And because Strong knew the guy, um, he managed to convince, like basically he, he and Friedman both got cut in on booking fees for these teams. Strong was also, like I said, he was a sporting goods salesman. So he was able to basically mandate that any teams playing through his bookings bought sporting equipment from him. <laughs> <laughs> That being said, he saw this as an opportunity to expand baseball. He thought that it was basically an untapped market. You know, he saw the caliber of a lot of these black teams that were playing and said, you know, they're playing just as good, uh, if not better in some cases. They're extremely entertaining. A lot of the times what they're missing is facilities, right? Resources, which is, you know, often the case for uh sporting disparities not always obviously but like that's that it makes a big difference to be funded at the same level he uh, strong begins organizing games through these fields and 
also starts standardizing East Coast play. So he buys a team called the Brooklyn Royal Giants, again, the Giants, uh, another black team, and tries setting up a a multiracial league. It's called the uh, National Association of Colored Baseball Clubs in 1906. This league has a couple of black teams, a couple of white teams, and a couple of Cuban teams. They, the idea just being that's like anybody can join this league sort of thing. It's a bit of a draw, but it only lasts until it lasts 1906 to 1910. It doesn't do great. And strong kind of falls back on that sort of like booking system for independent barnstorming uh, teams after that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these leagues don't, don't have a super long shelf life. No, at all. They, it's kind of it's kind of crazy the way that the way that instead of just trying to found a team and join an existing league, the thought is like, no, I'm going to come up with my with my own league. Yeah, and I, I mean a lot of that is that there is no established black league at this point, right? And they're effectively boxed out of major leagues. So what else do you do? I suppose they're also trying to get in at the top, right? That's the thing. If you found your own league, you can take a percentage of all ticket sales potentially you have a hand in setting rules there's a lot of advantages there right yeah but everybody wants to be that guy and so none of these leagues last all that long around the same time 1907 the uh chicago union giants now no longer just the chicago unions um begin to be managed by a player manager named andrew uh rube foster rube foster's a pitcher he's a very very good pitcher and the owner of the team just kind of doesn't want to coach like Foster is that much better at coaching that much better at managing that he kind of steps back and lets Foster do his thing. Um, Foster also takes over booking at this point in time and realizes, Hey, booking is kind of where the real money is. He begins or- right. organizing barnstorming tours more in the Midwest than on the East coast. They're out of Chicago after all, uh, starts putting together championships, starts putting together winter ball tours. So what they would do is like over the winter, they wouldn't stop playing. They would, uh, they would go out and do a tour through California or they would go down and do a tour through, uh, Florida, uh, where it's warm enough to still play ball in the, in the winter and put on exhibitions there. They preferred California because it was less dangerous for them, but they would do Florida. Right. Foster his 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 dream out of all of this was to build a, a completely black owned league. There's this idea in in the very early uh, 20th century. Once once like the initial post Civil War idea of of direct integration uh, falls through, and um, Jim Crow laws are put into place, there's a very prevalent idea among. Uh, black leaders that the best path forward for uh, the black community is to basically build their own businesses inside the United States, to build their own sort of structure in and around American life that is as separate and as equal as, uh, you know, white Americans seem to want. So there's this idea that like, well, if we can't be part of the uh, major leagues, maybe that's fine. Maybe it's actually better that black Americans have their own league and that that league is owned by black Americans and that those massive amounts of, of money being made off of ticket sales are, are not being funneled to, you know, white business owners who are just making money off of us. Maybe it's better that that money is going, you know, is, is remaining within the community. Yeah. 
which makes a lot of sense given the given the circumstances especially i mean it makes it makes sense but it's also like uh, just from everything you've said i mean you kind of you realize just how how difficult it sounds to to build a league i mean like you're telling me that 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 this team was touring california and florida in the winter and even that like even that seems borderline impossible given given as you said that there are restrictions on where you can stay and there are places that won't let you play never mind having the money um for hotels and for transportation and for all of that so yeah i mean like your 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 own league sense sounds perfect but it also like at this point uh, where we are in in history sense yeah i mean it sounds borderline impossible yeah it's all about the hustle right like these guys are going so hard for so little and yeah it's 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 really it's really a slog um the 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 chicago union giants get uh renamed the leland giants after owner frank leland when he takes over oh my god and um foster essentially tries to edge leland out he basically goes like listen i'm i'm running this team i i want it and this weird legal battle takes place which the result, and I do not understand how this happens, but the result is that Foster gets the name, the Leland Giants, like he keeps the right to that name. He gets that name from Frank Leland, but he doesn't get the rights to any of the players on that team. Frank Leland keeps those rights. So he takes only the team name and builds a new team under the Leland Giants name, which is not the uh, old Leland Giants. That makes no sense, but okay. Uh, right and then he renames it to the chicago american giants in 1910 uh, okay okay i'm just gonna accept that at face value i i only tell you all of this because i it probably took me 15 minutes to figure out the last three sentences (laughs) and how exactly they worked i was so confused and i'm just i need to share with everybody that's what happened yeah that's um mm -hmm. okay (laughs) yeah Foster continued, now that he's got ownership of an actual team, he continues building these barnstorming tours, these championships in the Midwest, um, slowly building things up, but doesn't start his own league until after World War I. World War I has a really interesting effect on the population of the United States. It's one of the triggering factors in what's known as the Great Migration. I'm not sure if this is something you've come across, but between about... 1910 and about 1970, more than 6 million black Americans move out of the South and head North, mainly to around Chicago, uh, Detroit, and somewhat to uh, New York. Okay. About a quarter of these are between 1916 and 1940. A big motivating factor, I mean, we don't 100% understand all of the motivations behind this. A lot of it is the racism of the South. And a lot of it is the draw of big industrial jobs in the North. Like think especially like car manufacturing in Detroit. Right. All of that being said, before 1910, 90% of the black population of the United States is in the South. And uh, after this migration, it's it's, uh, uh, a significantly, like a significant majority will have moved to the North. Um, it's, it's It's a massive internal movement. This brings uh, a much bigger audience to Chicago. It also brings a much bigger uh, talent pool to Chicago. And there's finally enough 
support, like groundswell, for Foster to found his own league in 1920, which is known as the Negro National League. Okay, I have a I have a stupid question. Mm-hmm. So, um, in reading about black professional leagues, um, a lot of the teams that I read about, um, they were in the northern states. Um, I assume. I assume that black people were playing baseball in the South. Was was it organized in any way? Like, was it just was it just a thing? Because uh, again, you're talking about like restricted access to parks and and stuff. So so, what did baseball look like in the South? Almost exclusively amateur. Um, right. There there will be some start to show up uh, very shortly where we are in in our story uh, at this point. But before this, almost exclusively amateur. Yeah, it's it's a game that was played, but not baseball was always very like a northeastern kind of thing right like even at this point playing in in california is more of like a a novelty than it is necessarily like a a major part of like you wouldn't necessarily expect every single town to have their own team the way you would in you know new york state or ohio or pennsylvania right so it's like yeah it was it was there um people played it it's been played in the south since you know, before the war, I, I was reading an account of, of a former slave who had played on plantation. They, they're the, the plantation he lived on. Basically, they, they finished uh, work uh, early for the day on Saturday. And by early, I mean like dinner time. Uh, and they were allowed to play baseball from dinner to dark. And then dark on was for uh, music and dancing. And then they were expected to be at church on, uh, on Sunday morning. And that was their weekend. Now, is that, you know, typical? Wow. No, but like it, it, it was, it was a part of life in the South. So yeah, I, I'm not sure if that, if, if that quite answers it, but in terms of like organization, yeah, no, yeah. there's, there's no real, there's no like paid leagues, uh, that I know of for, for a little bit yet. Yeah. So yeah, 1920, uh, Foster founds the Negro National League. It's the first black-owned league to last more than one season, um, which is a big milestone, I suppose, at this point. Foster is, you know, we talked about his his idea of business model, right? Foster is is as a result of that basically directly opposed to Nat Strong's chokehold on booking on the East Coast, right? Because strong as white um he wants to see black baseball owned by black owners run by black people so he tries you know uh encroaching on on strong's territory uh strong kind of fights back there's this big back and forth between them finally in in and there it was i was trying to remember the year finally in 1921 um he manages to get enough organization in southern baseball to put together what's essentially uh the equivalent of like minor league ball which is is being played at like a lower level than what we would expect of minor league but he sets up what's known as the uh the negro southern league to act as basically farm teams for the negro national league um starts developing talent down there once they get good enough brings them up to his uh professional teams in the negro national league and are there are there other i assume because this is just like early baseball. I assume there are other leagues trying to compete with the Negro National League. Well, in 1922, Nat Strong founds the Eastern Colored League is what they call it. And this is going to be East Coast. He teams up with the owner of the Hillside Daisies, uh, a black owner named Ed Bolden. The The hope being there that he can basically say, like, look, my league is going to be black owned as well. This is legitimate, you know, Negro baseball. And 
Bolden has this weird history with with Foster. They go back and forth stealing each other's players all the time. Bolden goes back and forth between the Eastern Colored League and the Negro National League a couple of times with his team. It's this it's this massive rivalry you don't really need to get into but they finally put things be, you know to one side in 1924 when the two leagues agreed to an annual world series this is going to be the uh the negro world series this would last all of three years which honestly the way these leagues have been going up to this point not bad yeah pretty good run <laughs> uh tragically in 1926 uh foster um, well, there was a gas leak in his home and, uh, he didn't die, but he lost so much oxygen to the, to the, to, to his brain that, um, he was, uh, like it, it affected his, his personality drastically. And he was committed to an asylum, which is a, a horrible oh thing to God. happen. Yeah. Yeah. Just awful. Right. Without his leadership, the Negro National League really starts faltering. The world series gets canceled. In 1927, Bolden also suffers a nervous breakdown, not because of a gas leak, but just the immense pressure of trying to run a baseball league. Uh, And he was also committed, actually. And the Eastern Colored League folds at that point. The Negro National League still kind of sticks around for a while. But in the 1920s, attendance really starts slipping on specifically black teams. A lot of this is that they continue to have more restricted access to ball fields. A lot of it is that Major League Baseball is getting better and better fields. They're getting better and better players. You know, before 1920, ball was kind of a a different thing, right? Like, that's the dead ball era. Uh, You know, you have a lot of, like, running, a lot of, like, small hits, not a lot of home runs. 1920, they change up the ball. Well, they change up the balls a little bit before that. Babe Ruth comes in. Everybody starts swinging for the fences. It becomes all about home runs. And it's, like, a very different style of baseball at that point, right? The way that white players are playing baseball and the way that black players are playing baseball kind of diverges at that point. Right. White major league play really follows Babe Ruth. And you can kind of understand why when you look into him as a player, but black ball keeps using, you know, bad balls. It keeps using poor fields. It keeps being about speed and not about power. And the power thing is just kind of what the majority of Americans want to watch. There's other financial things that are going on. There's lots of reasons that black baseball starts collapsing in the 1920s. But, you know, with the loss of some of its uh, kind of driving forces in uh, Foster and uh, in Bolden, the Negro National League is also struggling at this point. Stock market crashes in 29. And in 1931, the Negro National League uh, will fold as well. So I think that's probably a good spot to take a bit of a break. And, um, you know, when we when we come back, uh, Black Baseball is going to rally a little bit. We're going to have a bit of a, a golden age and we'll we'll go from there. That's such a wild it's such a wild thing to I mean, I don't know. I mean, you could you could look at so many, so many, I don't know what like organizations um, or leagues or just just like ideas at mm-hmm. certain points in history that were like spearheaded by one person. And to have, I mean, as you said, you know, black baseball will rally, but to have like the early days of, you know, the, the, or to have the Negro national league just felled because, you know, not, not just because of, of a gas leak, but in part because of a gas leak is mm-hmm. just such a, I don't know. It's, it's such a wild thing to have happen. 
Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. All right. Well, let's take that quick break and we'll, we'll be right back. Cool. Back on HI 101 here with Paul McGowan. Hey. And we've been talking about nearly baseball, which has been like extremely um, volatile up until this point. Uh, really hard yeah. to get anything kind of established, professional going. But then again, like we probably shouldn't be all that surprised that it was difficult to, you know, establish an all black baseball league in Jim Crow United States. Right. And I assume, I mean, I- I don't, you know, my major league history in, in the 1900s is not, uh, the best, but I assume that like kind of this period that you talked about with the Negro national league. So between like, I think it was whatever, like 1896 ish to like the end of the Mm twenties, I assume that in that span, like major league baseball or, or I guess the, the national league and the American league, I, I assume that they've both just kind of been chugging along. Yeah, more or less. I mean, the the American League is founded, oh, I might get this wrong, 1901, I believe. That sounds right to me. And so yeah, they're they're sort of they're sort of doing their thing. It's it's definitely one of those, you know, Major League Baseball is not as professional as you would expect professional baseball to be in this era. Yeah. You know, we we talked a little bit about the dead ball era. Maybe I should get into that a little bit more, like what that means, right? So like there's this weird section if you look at baseball stats between about 1900 and 1920 where like nobody was hitting any home runs or like not not none but like there's a significant dip in the number of home runs being hit part of that is like ball construction uh they they had a a rubber core and it just kind of fell apart a little bit um doesn't have like as much spring as the the cork core the other thing is that like the teams were all really cheap and they would just use the same ball for the entire game, like until it was like until it burst seams, they would continue using the same ball, which. Oh, that's that's bonkers. If you've ever like gone out and just like done like batting practice with a friend like when you there, there are balls that you will hit once. And if you hit it hard enough, like on the sweet spot of the bat, you you dent the ball. The ball is not is no longer a circle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is that like pitching uh, back then, there was a lot more latitude in what you could do to the ball. So there was a lot like this is like all spitball, you know emery ball things like that so they would like they would scuff the ball with with an emery board to like rough it up to to you know give it a little bit more texture so they could uh you know get a little more movement on it they would uh they would get the ball dirty so it would be harder to see um i i read one thing where where a a pitcher was spitting tobacco juice on the ball before before pitching so it'd be harder for the batter to see when they're swinging at it i mean that's kind of brilliant and then it's just that's the ball you use the whole game. If you if if somebody hit a home run in this era, you were expected to throw the ball back. Not as like a right. you know, rookie of the year chanting throw it back kind of deal, but like <laughs> we only have so many balls. Play, yeah. play could not commence without without the ball, give it back. And so, you know, by the end of the game, what you're playing with is just this like muddy, scuffed you know, wreck of a is former sphere, right? Like it's just, just terrible. And it was too, it was too mushy to get some, some decent distance on it. Okay. 
quick quick sidebar to the dead ball thing like did did stadium construction have any impact on that because i know like i don't know what era it was but like certain old stadiums just like center field was cat like center field was like 450 feet as opposed to like 400 feet yeah that was the next thing i was going to bring up somewhere as far as 500 feet and it's just That's like crazy yeah well yeah I, I would say yeah now now 400 is probably about about standard for a i mean yeah. every park is different but you know it's it's really really hard to hit a baseball 500 feet it's it's yeah extremely difficult and pitching was slower at that point which that's that's another thing the faster the ball is coming in the harder or the faster the ball will be heading out when you hit it so you've got slower pitches bigger fields um you know further walls uh and worse balls yeah it, it got it got very hard to hit a home run in this era so you know again that's that's more to put where you know, give you give you a sense of where Major League uh, Baseball was at. The other thing is that the players weren't actually being paid uh, arguably well enough. Um, this is sort of before like the players' union is in place. They're really being locked into uh, contracts that aren't terribly favorable uh, in this era, but also really didn't afford a lot of latitude for for trades and. Right. You know, I wasn't I wasn't planning on spending a lot of time about this, but like the the 1919 World Series is rigged by gamblers. They pay enough of the the players uh, on the Chicago White Sox to essentially throw uh, the game. I mean, it's it's not it's not a full throw, but there's there's key plays that are dropped and things like that in order to rig gambling so that they can make a ton of money on it and it's discovered this comes out and a bunch of players are banned etc etc but i bring all that up to say that like i imagine how much you would have to pay a major league player today for them to do something like cheat the game especially by like somebody outside the organization like yes i'm aware that cheating happens in major league baseball don't get me wrong but to like have somebody like show up in a trench coat and be like hey there pay you twenty dollars to throw the game like that's not a thing that would ever happen because it wouldn't be worth it to anybody yeah 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 this is an era where that's actually like players are going like well i could use the money looking back i mean like i kind of i'm kind of familiar with the story it's honestly unbelievable that you were able to prove something like that back then uh players blabbed basically is is what came what it came down to yeah like i said i I don't want to get into the whole the whole story too deeply but yeah it was it was witness testimony there's like to this day it's it's questionable as to which players were involved and how much etc etc but you know we we know that it was rigged uh it's just a matter of degrees so like that's that's where professional baseball is at here right like we're not talking about you know contracts in the tens of millions of dollars we're talking about guys who are paid just enough to play baseball professionally uh like not have a different job uh to be you know sponsored for all their gear uh maybe have some of their medical stuff taken care of some of their you know food and lodgings when they're traveling but beyond that it's not really paying all that great and the caliber right. the caliber of of gameplay is going to uh match that to some extent right yeah we uh we kind of stopped at the um at the great depression uh in the first half and you know i i think i think people in general have a pretty good idea of you know 
the extent to which the the Great Depression, you know, ravages the American economy uh, in the in the early 1930s. I think something that maybe doesn't always get uh, highlighted as strongly as it could is is who in U.S. Uh, society is being affected by that, right? We talked in the first half about um, that concept of a thriving um, but separate black uh, business community, right? The the problem with an ecosystem like that is that when you're being supported by essentially a a tenth of the population and the economy goes bad, you are 10 times more vulnerable to these economic problems, right? And it significantly affects black baseball you know, for the owners of the teams through ticket sales, uh, but also through like the spending base uh, or the, the the spending money of their base, um, a much larger percentage of the, the black population is going to find themselves uh, out of a job due to the depression um, than than the white population. Uh, it's it's just it it hits like any other economic problem is going to hit the black community harder than the general population. And so a lot of the players who, you know, they've been playing on salaries for the first time in their lives, uh, see themselves kind of rolled back to those like cuts of the ticket price because there's just not enough money coming in to guarantee a salary for these players. Uh, All they can really guarantee is, is that cut of the, of the purse essentially. And if not enough people come to see you play, well, then there's not really that much money to, to go around. And that's just sort of how it is. Yeah. Uh, a player owner named Cumberland po- Posey, uh, attempts to revive black baseball in 1932. So the year after the Negro national league collapses, but it, it, it doesn't work out. He's not able to make anything work. He sort of patches together the beginnings of a league, but it never gets off the ground. So he decides to focus uh, his his team, the Homestead Grays, on uh, a barnstorming circuit and just really, really hustles. This is uh, Homestead is uh, uh, Pennsylvania, basically, and okay. uh, for for the next little bit. Pennsylvania is really going to be the center of black baseball in a lot of ways. Um, the the New York uh, scene is is really ravaged by the depression, by poor turnout, things like that. Posey's an interesting guy. You know, he's a he's a former player. He also formerly played uh, basketball. Um, his father made uh, really decent money with a number of different ventures, uh, including like you know riverboat um, shipping. And uh, he owned a newspaper. I really thought you were going to say riverboat gambling, but that's that's on me. Interestingly enough, Posey is one of the few people involved <laughs> in black baseball in this era that is not deeply involved in gambling. Yeah, no, just not 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 anything to do with with black baseball. Just for some reason, like riverboat gambling is a phrase sure. in my head, weirdly. But no, that that no, I, I got you. But uh, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from there. But no, like for for real, everybody else in baseball after this point is going to be there basically laundering money. Posey's father had owned the Pittsburgh Courier, and he actually got Cumberland Posey a sports writing gig in the paper, ostensibly because he's played both basketball and baseball at a, at a fairly high level. And Posey's an interesting guy because he basically takes this column and uses it as his own like bully pulpit to 
sometimes bash baseball rivals, sometimes to try and like steer public opinion on the state of the game, things like that. Like this is like some of the most biased journalism I've ever heard of, which is really interesting. Right. But that was also that was also more common back then too, right? It was like using oh. Or even like founding a paper to kind of like, yeah, to like to to kind of propagate your opinion. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's that's honestly the majority of the history of journalism. Um, but yeah, yeah. no, you're, you're right. It's it's much more common in this era. Across town in Pittsburgh, there's a, a gangster and a gambler named Gus Greenlee, and he hears about all the success that Homestead is having, uh, the, the Homestead Grays are having. Um, mostly because Posey is hustling so hard to like make this thing work. He's one of the few successful teams in this era. And uh, Greenlee hears about all this, this success and goes, this might actually be a great way to launder money. The idea being, well, I'm just going to get myself a team, which he does. He purchases the, uh, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and he builds himself, himself a field where, you know, black players are allowed to actually play seeing as they've been increasingly kind of edged out of common fields. And once he's got that field built, he basically goes like, how can anyone prove how many people came to the game in any given day? So like, yeah, people will come to the game, but the ticket sales that I'm going to write down are going to be higher than, than, you know, the actual attendance. And now I've got clean money. That's that's kind of smart. Greenlee was involved in something that's known like colloquially as like a numbers game, which was this form of lottery that was really popular during the Depression, especially among black communities, because you could essentially bet any amount of money that you wanted, like starting at a penny and payouts could be relatively high, but your chances of winning are extremely low. Uh, they're almost always a three digit number. And rather than actually running like a proper lottery, it was more like a like a betting system, like similar to what you'd see for like the Oscars or something like that, where it's just like betting on a completely outside thing. So they would go like, um, I don't know, what do you think the last three numbers are going to be of the stock exchange when it closes today? Everyone can check oh, what those numbers. Okay. Everyone can check what those numbers are because, you know, they're they're made public. So there's no like real infrastructure needed to run one of these games other than collecting and paying out money. And you almost never pay out money. After Greenlee puts this together, he realizes that like, yeah, it's it's helping to sort of uh, launder his money, but also it turns out that his team is actually doing okay and he's making decent money from the sales. <laughs> and he kind of goes, Well, maybe I'll just own a baseball team then. It seems easier. <laughs> it's definitely more legal. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he could have done both. That's all I'll say. Well, he, he, yeah, there are other, there are other owners in this era. Um, I'm certainly not going to say all, but like, He's not the only one who's using baseball in this era to launder money. That being said, it does right. get black baseball back off the ground. Um, he's so successful in, you know, in making money off of this venture that in 1933, he founds uh, another uh, Negro National League. This is uh, the same name as the one that folded in 1931. Completely different league, completely different ownership, different teams for the most part. Um just kind of kept the same name for continuity's sake. Uh, the Homestead Grays would join this league. Posey had 
choice words to say about Gus Greenlee. Did not like the guy. Did not like the way that the league was run. Didn't like the uh, involvement of gambling in baseball. Thought that it was kind of beneath baseball to some extent. Still participated in the league. Just to kind of clarify where we're at, Gus Greenlee, I, I assume, is a white man as well. No, he's he's black. Oh, okay, okay. Yep. So, yeah, you know, Posey joins up in the league. He's he's willing to participate in it, at least. And the, the Grays are actually quite dominant in this league. Of the 15 or so seasons that the, the league is going to exist in the current form, the Grays will win nine of the pennants. Like... They're they're wow. they're doing quite well. Like they're playing good baseball. Posey really cared about putting together good teams. He wasn't in the game for like in the ownership game for the money, although that didn't hurt. He wanted to win ball. He's there to win. In 1933, the league organized the first uh black all-star game, uh modeled after the uh major league all-star games, obviously. With the main difference being that in this era in Major League Baseball, the All-Star game is uh, like the the players are selected by sports writers. Greenlee has the idea to have every single player fan voted in the All-Star game. People love this. Fans go absolutely nuts for it. And just to make sure that it is as big an event as possible, he actually uh, manages to rent out Comiskey Field in Chicago and holds the all-star game on an actual real uh, major league field where 20,000 people can come and watch. Right. It's huge. It's massively successful. Very, very popular. Really revives uh, the idea of of black baseball in the sort of wider uh, popular uh, imagination where it had been kind of flagging ever since kind of the mid twenties, I would say. It's funny how even a couple of years away from something can make it seem very fresh. And these players in, in this era are playing such a dynamic game of, you know, what they would call inside ball, what we might call small ball now. Uh, you know, right. lots of, you know, not, not a lot of big hits, not a lot of swinging for the fences. You've got a lot of base stealing, a lot of bunting, a lot of like attempted like deception like it's a very like fast game compared to most baseball that you would see uh played today it's uh yeah. really really heads up it's really exciting to watch games are also a lot shorter in this era i saw somebody complaining that a game went past two hours um which is oh my god which is wild i i uh, I, I remember one I went to a couple of years ago that we were surprised that it was done before three hours. So um, I, I, I'd say usually right. it's about you know, three and a quarter, something like that. Uh, maybe yeah. Three and oh, a and half. if you're and if you're watching a bad baseball team, I mean you're you're talking you're talking closer to four hours. Like it's yeah, it's a grind. It can, it, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's another big uh, innovation in this era that I alluded to very early on, which is the introduction of um, electric lighting which was highly controversial, like extremely controversial in baseball terms. The major leagues were very slow to accept it. They didn't like the idea of playing under lights. They thought it was unnatural. Um, To be fair, a lot of the early lights was really hard to see, like actually well enough to play baseball. But there's also a lot of columns that it's like, oh, the night air is not the same as the daytime air. You know, it'll it'll cause indigestion (laughs) in our players. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's like okay 
Calm down. The the audacity the audacity of that argument is uh, you kind of have to admire it a little bit. But when you're a promoter of black baseball, what you see with the electric lighting is a business opportunity because the majority of your fan base doesn't have the means to you know say I don't know take a Thursday afternoon off to go watch a baseball game. So right. you're relegated mainly to weekend games. Electric lighting opens up nighttime games for black audiences um, and allows a lot more of them to see ball, which is also going to help increase uh, ticket sales and is also going to make uh, black baseball a little more pervasive. It allows a lot longer or or a lot fuller barnstorming uh, uh, series. It's just a lot more opportunities to just get out there on the field, get people out to pay money to see baseball played. And uh, they really take advantage of that. In 1937, there's another uh, league founded in the Midwest. Uh, It's the Negro American League this time. And uh, this is like, unlike last time, it's not seen as like a threat. It's more seen as an opportunity. Greenlee is like a, he's a, he's a born promoter, right? He basically sees this as an opportunity to revive the, uh, the idea of a Negro World Series, uh, which takes place in 1942. Again, extremely popular stuff. That being said, the baseball in general, uh, ticket sales in general, all of that is going to be cut short by uh, for for all baseball uh, by the war, which uh, for the United States begins in 1941. Right. When you look at Major League Baseball in this era, the teams that are fielded in like the 42, 43, 44 seasons are virtually unrecognizable. All of the famous names that you would have known from before the the, the war started are uh, shipped overseas. Um, some of them right. will play in like essentially army teams, which is a weird thing, but like they're not, you know, at home playing for major league teams. Yeah. This isn't as hard on black baseball, largely because... Uh, and this is something you'll you'll notice when you read about black baseball. A lot of the a lot of the players are older, and a lot of them are old enough that they are not conscripted into uh, the U.S. military during World War II. Like the the cutoff was basically thirty. Right. Okay. Okay. I don't know. There's there's a lot of these guys that are playing ball into their forties. Like no problem, no problem. Whereas yeah. the the major leagues are are constantly refilling with like very young. Uh, talent uh, in comparison so that helps uh, black baseball as well just in 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 like a continuity sense like you don't have to learn an entirely new team to keep up with it the the stars that you're used to are still there it also helps black baseball in that a lot of uh, black americans rather than serving in the military which was still segregated to a fairly large extent a lot of them are working in uh, war industry, so you know, making bullets, making tanks. You know, not not specifically always, but like there's a lot of like manufacturing capacity that's generated because of the war that's filled by black labor, which, along with the great migration that we talked about, gets a lot more uh, black Americans into cities. Uh, gives them more money that they can actually spend on things like baseball games. Uh, I suppose you could call disposable income what little there was. And again, not that the not that the ticket sales uh, weren't affected by the war, but they weren't nearly as affected by 
the war as as major league baseball would be right and also just like just as like a, a check-in on kind of where things are i mean are we at a point where these black professional teams now have home stadiums uh, or or is that still kind of a ways off I think stadium might be overselling it a little bit. Most of them have, <laughs> but like a home ballpark kind of thing. I, I know. I'm just, I'm just being pedantic. Uh, no, no, no. They'll, they'll have their own home field. Yeah, for sure. Almost all of them. Will. Okay. Okay. Uh, these, these owners will put lots of money into developing the sort of infrastructure that is, is kind of required for a fan base to build. Um, they, they really take from the lessons of the 1920s, right? Like they can't just expect to play in other people's fields and expect it to go. Okay. Um, right. You know, if they're going to have a space to play, they need to have their own space. Um, they need to actually, uh, uh, I suppose, vertically integrate is is the way to put that. They need to have all of those facilities top down available to them. Um, right. A lot of these teams in this era will play exhibition games against minor league baseball or even major league baseball teams. A lot of them will do pretty well. Uh, on balance, you know, the, the white teams will win more often, but it's also noted even by contemporary sports writers that the way, you know, the, the, the opportunities that are open to uh, a white professional baseball player are very, very different from what you would see as a black baseball player in this era. Uh, you know, by, by the time you get to the forties, uh, a white professional baseball player, they're, they're being pretty well taken care of. You have an off season. You have, you know, a team doctor. You're being paid pretty well now that they've learned their lesson out of the, uh, uh, out of the the nineteen nineteen scandal. There's there's a lot of opportunities there in terms of coaching talent that that just really don't exist for black players. You're playing year round. Like there is no spring training because you're never out of shape, right? You don't stop playing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of players who don't really have anything approaching proper medical uh, care coaching basically depends on who or how good the best players on the team are at coaching one another and a lot of times the fields that black players are playing on aren't nearly as well maintained as the ones that white players are playing on just because you don't have the capacity and therefore you don't have the ticket sales and therefore you don't have the overhead for uh things like upkeep you know um yeah. So yeah, sports writers at even that time are going like, well, you know, put these guys on on you know a field that doesn't have lumps in it, and give them time off for strain injuries, and you know all the other things that that we do for white players, and and a lot of them are going to be competitive or better. So it, it's it's you know by the time you get to the forties, that somewhat artificial nature of the separation of the leagues is starting to be seen a little bit uh, by by the general public. Now. You know, obviously, this is a, a pretty rosy way of looking at, uh, you know, the integration of, of the leagues. Um, there are a lot of people that are against it for some pretty heinous reasons. Um, but there is a vocal segment of the population by the time you get to the 40s that are going like, why, why, why not, though? Why no baseball player? Why no black baseball players in the major leagues? Yeah. A big portion of uh, why no black baseball players in the major leagues is a man named Kennesaw Mountain Landis, which, man, that's an intimidating name. Uh, and he was an intimidating man. Uh, Landis was uh, a former judge. Uh, he had actually been the judge in the 1919 World Series scandal. And after his handling of that scandal, he had been made commissioner of Major League Baseball. That's in 1920. 
he is still the commissioner up until his death in 1944. The official rule book for Major League Baseball never expressly prohibited black players from playing. That being said, there's something that's known as the gentleman's agreement, which is a, a kind of right. fancy name for something very insidious, which is that essentially every owner of every major league team had a handshake agreement not to draft any black players into the major leagues. And Landis was a major part in supporting this unspoken rule. Uh, he did not want black players in the major leagues. There's an event in 1942, which is somewhat disputed, but probably did happen. There was a uh, there was a, a an ownership bid for the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Phillies that there was a oh I've forgotten his name but the uh, the guy who put in the winning bid Landis got word that uh, he was planning on basically poaching a bunch of the best Negro League players to put on the Phillies because he figured that number one it would be a draw and number two that those players could could hack it in the major leagues and put together a decent team. When Landis heard about this plan, he killed that bid and gave it to the second place bidder on the understanding that that owner would not be hiring any black players. Wow. Who, I mean, like is, is that owner, that potential owner of the Phillies, is he, I don't know. Does he pop up again? Like in, in terms of trying to desegregate things or is that just kind of a one-off event yeah no he 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 does end up owning uh i'm gonna have to put this in the corrections he does end up owning another team um and they will be uh integrated it's just it's it's after jackie robinson basically right right so that's that's why he had kind of the platform to tell this story later on um but he won't own the phillies um i'll, I'll pop it in the notes uh I might even add it and uh, mention it at the end of this episode. But anyways, uh, yeah, he, he will own a, a, a later team. He's not the one that uh, leads that charge for, for or, or succeeds in that charge for integration, at least. You know, as early as 1942, or sorry, as early as 1943, uh, the owner of uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, a guy named Branch Rickey, these names, man, I love them. Um, Branch Rickey is uh, as early as 1943 scouting uh, black players for specifically for their fitness to cross the color line in Major League Baseball. Uh, it's being done in secret because of Landis's uh, not so secret uh, opposition to uh, integrating baseball. But in uh, in 1943, he's actually working with Gus Greenlee to find not just a good player, but a good a player who will be a good fit for the uh, challenges of, uh, you know, navigating uh, an extremely hostile uh, league in order to be uh, a successful first uh, player. And right. Ricky is kind of an interesting case where I, I, from everything I've read about him, like yeah, this is partially a business decision. He he understands that there's a, a a massive pool of untapped talent that he could be working from and would very much like to work from. But he also had some you know experiences in his life where he he just he saw 
uh, segregation as as just a, a moral wrong, and and did not agree with it. And you know, there's a there's a quote from him that's somewhere along the lines of, uh, you know, I can't fix segregation everywhere, but I can fix it on this one team or something to that effect. And you know, I, I think it's I think it's easy to be cynical about stuff like this. Um, especially so long ago, uh, and especially when that much money is involved. Yeah. But from, from anything I've seen about Branch Rickey, he, he legitimately did see, uh, this as the, the right thing to do, which is, uh, you know, somewhat refreshing in this story as it's gone so far. Yeah. Um, when Landis dies in uh, November of 1944, uh, the new commissioner is a guy named Happy Chandler. Um, who <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't name them. I don't make, I couldn't make this stuff up, I, man. To this point. I mean, I haven't really kept a running tally, but Cumberland Posey is so far in my mind, the best name. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty good one. Um, happy Chandler. Yeah. Much more open to the idea of integration, specifically his, argument against segregation was uh, well it came down to the second world war he basically said like if if uh you know if black men are, are good enough to serve in the army beside uh beside white soldiers then why shouldn't they be able to play on the same fields and this is from what i understand not an uncommon sentiment in the united states in the in the mid 40s a lot of people will uh, attribute you know black soldiers in the in, in the second world war as being one of the factors that leads to you know the civil rights challenges of, of the 50s and, and and eventually the the civil rights movement of the of the 60s i, I forget the source of this but there's a a quote that goes somewhere along the lines of like it's hard to it's hard to hate up close and you know i, I think as people got to know especially in the north with the with the the great migration as people got that that face-to-face experience with other black americans again i don't want to present too rosy a picture of all of this but it does provide some momentum towards uh at least beginning to disassemble some of the segregation that was put in place in the 1890s yeah so yeah, Chandler, he's much more open to the idea of integration. Uh, Ricky's been working at this for a while. He's uh, finally able to go public with that, um, with the new commissioner. And in uh, 1945, manages to uh, identify uh, an ideal candidate in Jackie Robinson. And specifically what he was looking for when he drafted uh, Jackie Robinson was both somebody who was a good baseball player, so no one could impeach him on his performance. And Jackie Robinson was a pretty good player. Like his his record really stands uh, on its own merits. He was also looking for someone who he thought could tolerate abuse from not only opposing teams and the audience, uh, but also potentially his own teammates. And uh, Robinson was known as a pretty uh, stable guy. Um, I don't get the impression that Ricky necessarily relished this as a as a requirement. Like it wasn't a it wasn't a he's looking for somebody to behave sort of thing. It was more trying to be pragmatic about what breaking these these walls down would actually mean for the sport of baseball and what it would mean for the person who would be representative of that. Yeah. It's, it's funny because sitting here thinking about it, I mean, 
on the one hand, you're you're like, oh well, it, it would have been easier if if you had two or three guys that you that you that you brought to one team, right? And then all the attention wasn't on one person; it was more of a. But then you're like, no, like it it kind of makes sense that it had to be one person. Yeah, I mean, you know, just in terms of in terms of like in in terms of then you're not defending as as you said the the professional record or the the baseball talent of three guys you're defending the professional talent of one guy and especially if he fits at like a position where you have a need like it just becomes easier to I guess at that time justify bringing in one guy as opposed to as a as opposed to like breaking breaking the barrier more wide open initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and and I mean I think the talent is sort of a. I think a lot of focus is put on the deal that Brand Tricky and, and Jackie Robinson have uh, quite famously, right? That uh, you know for the first year of play, first year, first two years of play, I can never remember. He wasn't allowed to fight back. Right. Like that was the deal. You don't fight back. You take whatever people dish out that way. You know, nobody can accuse you of being, you know, angry, of being an instigator. And, and you know, I, I can understand where that focus comes from. Right. Like that's a that's an important component. I think that the professional level is sometimes almost downplayed on Jackie Robinson. He was a good player. And that's important for like a very specific reason in that, that, you know, you can't you can't remove Robinson from this context, which is that on paper, it's never been illegal for uh, a black player to play in the major leagues. Um, yes, there's this gentleman's agreement behind the scenes, but like there's nothing in like the official rules that says um, just realize that's the the airbud thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's. Uh, the the official line anytime Landis was asked about integrating baseball was that there's nothing stopping black players from playing in Major League Baseball. It's simply that no player was good enough. Right. That was the public line. And so right. what Ricky's doing here isn't changing the rules of baseball. Not not like the written rules. What he needs to do with Robinson is prove that, yes, black players are good enough. And this isn't something that's a surprise to most people, right? Negro League teams had been playing exhibition games against professional teams for, for quite some time. It's yeah. just that like you can't give anyone even the excuse when you're when you're breaking in at this level, right? And so right. yeah, Jackie needed to be able to take the abuse, but he also needed to be able to perform and he did like really well um he was you know when he's inducted into the baseball hall of fame it's not i I mean you know yeah part of it is that he's the the first black person to play major league baseball uh in the modern era um but it's also on his record like it's not like they need to fudge anything his his record is good enough to get into the hall of fame no problem yeah you know that first year is extremely rough for him um, for, for very obvious reasons. He had spent, you know, I, I mentioned he was drafted in 45. He spent, uh, the season, uh, in 1946 playing their, their minor league affiliate, uh, in, uh, in Montreal, actually, uh, the Montreal Royals, uh, called up in 1947. And when he starts playing, he takes a lot of abuse from his own teammates. Um, that eventually goes away as the abuse from, opposing teams gets basically so bad that 
kind of the you know the 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 team mentality kicks in and it's kind of like hey who are you to say that to my teammate and and they yeah. they do eventually rally around them there are a couple of teams that try the whole like you know we're not going to play with with this um you know with a we're not going to play a team with uh with a black player and essentially they have the support of not only the dodgers management but they also have the commissioner on their side where they're kind of going like listen you're just going to forfeit the game it's going to be a loss like what what kind of stand are you trying to make here exactly right and you know those that that bluster kind of kind of dies down um not not too long after i mean the the abuse that robinson takes is like yeah he he got bad slides all the time He, he had a you know, a pretty significant leg injury from someone who he got, you know, basically slashed and he just sort of played through it and didn't give anyone the the excuse exactly the way uh, Ricky had been hope, hoping for. And once it was established that he's not the one starting it, Ricky kind of said, okay, you can start giving it back a little bit. Did, did anybody try to like fleet Walker him and, you know, refuse to put their team on the field or was that you know, did having a commissioner who was who was more open to integration did that kind of uh, prevent anything like that from happening? Yeah, no, no. There there were a couple of threats, but nothing got followed through on. Um, you know, it, it's it, because they have the support of the commissioner. It, it, it rings pretty hollow, right? It's it's not it's not that whole uh, fleet walker. You know, get rid of the one guy and and uh, and the rest of the league's going to be happy. It, it it really was kind of seen as um, this is the way forward for baseball and you're just stepping in the way and you're on the wrong side. Uh, right. So, you know, with the fines they're able to levy against uh, teams, with the loss of standings, things like that, um, most teams became okay with it pretty quickly. There were a couple of holdouts. The uh, the Boston Red Sox in particular, uh, the, the owner was was strongly against integration for a very long time um they would be the last team to integrate uh they wouldn't have a black player until 1959 so 1950 so three years then after after jackie robinson 13 19 oh wait 1959 oh wow okay yeah no you you cut out for a second man yeah it's it's not good man no at first, at first, I was like, three years doesn't seem like that long to like for the whole league to integrate. But um, no. uh, yeah, yeah, uh, not not quite that rosy. Okay. No, 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 no. Um, by the way, the second uh, black player signed to the MLB also in 1947, uh, Larry Doby signed to uh, Cleveland, um, which uh, means the American League uh, integrated the same year as, as the National League. Um, doesn't get as much recognition. You know, th- there was this big lead up to Jackie taking the field. There's a lot of coverage. There was a lot of like, there was almost two years of lead up to it and discussion and people getting used to it. Doby just kind of like shows up on the field one day. It's like, oh yeah, this is our new guy. Um, a lot less fanfare. He, he managed to kind of avoid a lot of the, the worst of it. Um, you know, Jackie really took the, the brunt of that as a, as a trailblazer, I think. That's one of the things that um that I'm interested in is like so yeah like were other teams doing the branch Ricky thing and and scouting these players 
Um, I guess like, yeah, like, like how soon after Jackie Robinson, um, came in, did, did other teams start saying, uh, okay, like, let's go get the best black players that are out there. Yeah. It's, it's almost immediate, you know, it's, it's very, very quick. It's in the next couple of years, uh, multiple teams are, are bringing on black players. I, I think, I think the first six or so were in the first, were, were there by, by 1948 kind of thing. So it, it's pretty quick once that once that barrier has been breached, and you know I, I think I think Robinson's performance in his first season is a big part of that. He's actually Rookie of the Year, nineteen forty seven, and the Dodgers uh, actually go to the World Series uh, that year, partially helped by his performance. Right. They they lose in seven to the Yankees, which you know that's how it goes sometimes. That's that's gonna happen if 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 you're a baseball team. Sometimes you're just gonna lose to the Yankees in seven. It's it, it happens more often than not. I'd say. Um, yeah. Anyways. Uh, yeah. So you know, it's it's one of those things that like I, I think I think from a you know a civil rights standpoint, it's easy to say like yes, this is an unequivocally good thing. Color line is breached. Baseball is integrated. It's not really that simple though when it comes to you know, black baseball in general, because once that color line is crossed, the Negro National League collapses in on itself almost immediately. Like it's it it it, it loses right. ticket sales like crazy. People don't necessarily want to go see a Negro League game. Black audiences really want to see black players playing in the major leagues because it's a big deal for them. It's a very understandable reaction to the whole thing, right? Yeah, and one, it's in and more than that too. I mean, you're you're seeing a league where you're like, okay, the best players aren't here anymore. It turns you, it turns you into a minor league, right? Almost immediately. Yeah, and it's and and you know the other the other portion of this that uh, we we haven't mentioned as much is that it's not the only place that players were bleeding to. There's a Mexican league in this era that is much better integrated than anything in the United States, and right is willing to pay for some talent. So if you don't get scouted to a major league team, maybe you go to Mexico and play there. Maybe you go down to the Caribbean and play ball there for a while. The the you know the teams that are fielded in the 30s and 40s in the Dominican Republic are a big part of why Dominican players are uh, as common in Major League Baseball now as they are. You know those those players were going down to countries where they just don't have to deal with all the Jim Crow nonsense. And getting paid decent right. money and pay, playing in good weather even in the winter. And it's kind of like, you know, get get the money. Absolutely go get the money. Yeah. But it all comes at the detriment of Negro League teams who, you know, as you pointed out, are seen as just not, not elite. They're not elite anymore. They're where you play until you get pulled to somewhere else or until you wash out. Yeah. Which, I mean, is, is, is kind of, I mean, that's. Not that you ever could have. I mean, I don't. I don't think it ever happens that one league will, you know, absorb another league, or 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 if it does, you know, they won't absorb all of the teams from that other league. But mm-hmm. but it's hard because then you're you've got major league teams and and white owners pulling the best players from these black professional leagues, and then these black professional leagues, which are largely owned by black Americans, I mean, I don't know how long they, they stayed afloat for, but, but I mean, ultimately that, that destroyed the business. I mean, that's kind of, it's great that the color barrier was breached, but it's, 
you know, not necessarily in an equitable way. Right. Oh, exactly. And it's, it's, you know, something that's frequently pointed out about the leagues that it's like, yes, this is, this is good from a progress standpoint, but like a way it's usually, I, I usually see it characterized as like a way of life was lost to some extent because not every player that was making a salary in, you know, the Negro leagues is going to move up into major league baseball. There just aren't that many slots. So some people are losing yeah. jobs you know yeah they're not they're not playing pro baseball anymore um you know there's there are there are owners that are losing massive amounts of money there are crowds that are migrating away from teams that used to be their team the the negro national league folds in 1948 it's almost immediate uh it can't hold up to this Jeez. to this pressure it, it's really um it, it's really devastating and you know it's 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 a tricky thing to navigate from the like was was this good or not right a lot of people have said that like the the baseball that was played in these leagues was very very different um you know we talked about how it remained like fast even after you know in a, in a post babe ruth world right when when jackie robinson ends up on the dodgers the baseball that's being played in the major leagues is still that very like stiff swing for the fences try for a home run on every uh, on every ball kind of baseball and when somebody who came up in the negro leagues starts stealing bases from you like it was a shot in the arm for the major leagues right but baseball as a whole doesn't just become what negro league ball was it synthesizes it into like the bigger, you know, the, the bigger, uh, uh, zeitgeist of, of baseball. So it's not, it's not the same thing. There are people talking about how they don't enjoy watching it as much. It's not as loose. It's not as fun. It's too, you know, formalized, you know, the, the leagues that, you know, when the league goes under, there's, there's a scramble in, uh, uh, Negro league, uh, ball to figure out, uh, contracts, uh, situations. Jackie had been poached from a team called the Kansas City Monarchs basically because he didn't have a contract with them. Branch Rickey didn't pay them anything for Jackie. He left in the middle of a season. And the reason for that is that, you know, in general with with uh, black baseball, you wouldn't necessarily sign a contract. You would work things out by letter, sometimes by telegraph. You might have a telegraph from somebody saying like, yes, I agree to play for you for X amount of time for X amount of dollars. It's not a signed contract. And the major right. league boys, they, their lawyers do not play. So when it came to Robinson, it was like, well, he, the, the major leagues just waltzed in and took him, and there was nothing we could do. Like we had nothing. So there's this attempt to kind of clean up their bookkeeping uh, get contracts in place. The players didn't like it. Some of the owners didn't like it because a lot of them were essentially gangsters and didn't want that degree of scrutiny brought against them. It really tears the 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 whole league apart. The Negro American League uh, is reduced to minor league status in 1951, and they last until 1958, at which point they fold. It's so fast. It's really, really fast once that barrier is down. And it, it's tough because a lot of this stuff isn't well documented. It's not, um, you know, like it, it goes away so fast that we have years that we're not entirely sure what, uh, you know, I, I saw one year, I think we're not in like 100% sure who won that year's championship. Like it's very, very spotty. <laughs> it just disappears. No, but it's, it's, 
Yeah. Well, and the, that, that book that I was talking about, uh, only the ball was white. I mean, first of all, it's great because it, it, I mean, it includes so many first person accounts of what life was like playing on one of those teams. But, but the author at one point notes that like, everything was one of the first guys. It was, it was like the third guy behind fleet Walker and his brother to, to play, you know, quote unquote professionally. And, and he was, you know, talking about the, the statistics kept for this guy's early career. And he's like, you know, one source says that he started playing in whatever year. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's probably not true. Cause he would have been 14 at the time. Like, <laughs> like just all of the, there, there is that incompleteness, I guess, to, to a lot of the records. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, very spotty. Um, you know, that, that book that you mentioned only, only the ball was white is actually a, like, it's a really important piece of, of keeping that history. Because as you said, there's a lot of firsthand accounts that's written in 1970. Um, yeah. Baseball players start calling like as early as like 66 for some recognition of the, the Negro leagues, mainly black players, but, but not exclusively people going like, listen, this is important history that we're losing. Um, because so much of it is oral and so much of it was unrecorded and because it's not regarded as on the same level as Major League Baseball, but it should be. And essentially since 1966 or so, people have been calling for, you know, uh, the, the, the Hall of Fame to recognize players and they've been just so slow to do so. In a lot of cases, I think because the records, if they were recognized, would probably topple some like established names and established records. And they didn't want to do that for a really long time. They would sort of like yeah. trickle in a player here and there as like an honorary member, which just always, I don't know, it almost felt worse in some ways than than leaving them out. Uh, it, it's yeah. this whole like, we'll let you in, but you're not a real member thing. When I think like I can't. I can't name names, but I do think like the, the, the thing that I remember reading was, was, uh, I, th I think it was a guy who played in one of the leagues who said like, look, like I'm not saying that everybody in these leagues could have played major league baseball. But his point was that like, if you took everybody playing in a black professional league, you could form probably two major league caliber teams that could beat any team in the major leagues. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, th that's, that's, that's the thing. There's this whole like, well, you know, an entire team can beat an entire team of this, that no, no, no. When we're talking about individual athletes, there's no doubt that a number of these guys were, were more than good enough to compete. Um, well, and, and as soon as the color barrier comes down, we see them competing. It's not like it's, it's, it, there's, there's no contest there. Right. But it, it kind of rubs up against this nostalgia that goes along with baseball, right? Like it's been around for so long that it's become important to certain people that, you know, that, you know, the greatest player in, in the 1920s was Babe Ruth. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that there was another player active at exactly that time that had exactly a better, uh, record, but it would really bother some folks if that was the case. And that's yeah. kind of a problem, right? Like, yeah, I, I saw one proposal that went as far as to say that every record before 1960 should have an asterisk because those players weren't facing all the best players in baseball at the time, uh, specifically because of the segregation of the leagues. And I mean, that's never going to happen. But like, that's not that's also a thing that's being put out by sports writers that 
yeah you know is is not the most controversial thing being said it's 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 a tough thing to to reckon with you know so yeah that's that's negro leagues can i tell you about a couple players that i just really like um to wrap things oh up oh my god i was really you know what i like going through that book and it, first of all a reading as as we've said some of the names yeah um but also just some of the stories about like the travel and yeah like i would love i yeah i'm 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 excited okay i i got a couple quick ones i don't want to spend a ton of time on this it's just it's really hard to fit them in when you're looking at big picture but some of these characters are so interesting so first one i've got is uh james bell who also was known as cool papa bell love it he was considered the fastest player uh in baseball period um he was extremely fast keep in mind most of these stories i'm going to tell you are extremely disputed because there's a massive uh, culture of like bragging in in the negro leagues like it's a big part of it yeah right? yeah, yeah, yeah there's there's a lot of fish stories in here so allegedly cool papa bell once scored from first on a sacrifice bunt allegedly I mean, if you throw an error or two in there, I can believe it. But okay, okay. So, so that means somebody bunted the ball, which means it went, you know, twenty or thirty feet, probably very slowly. And yeah. this man managed to run from first to second to third to home safely. That's not possible. Um, and if it did happen, that's incredible. Um, yeah. There's this. There's this anecdote that I've heard said about a bunch of different people, uh, including Muhammad Ali, before, which is the saying that like they're so fast that they could turn off the lights and be in, or turn off the switch and be in bed before the lights are off. Have you heard that saying yeah. before? That's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. originally about cool Papa Bell. Oh, I love it. Oh, but there's also, more. I just can't get over the name. I can't get over the name. There's, there's more though. The reason okay. for that saying is because one time when he was on the road, he was in a hotel room that he found out there was an electrical fault in the switch that it took a while for the, the light to go off after you switched it off, like a couple seconds. And he made 10 bucks off somebody betting that specific thing. <laughs> Why? Uh, I would never take that bet, but I, it's such a good story. It's, it's, it's an incredible story. I, I don't think we can talk about Negro League Baseball without mentioning Satchel Page. Just an absolutely larger than life uh, uh, pitcher. Yeah. He, he was actually signed to the majors in 1948. He was 42 years old at the time. He was 42 when he made his debut. That's incredible. Your debut year at 42. How many, how many players play till 37 anymore? <sighs> yeah, seriously. This is kind of what I was talking about earlier when I said a lot of the players are older, right? He was the oldest MLB player when he pitched three innings at age 59. No. Yes. In a major league game. Yes. Uh, Satchel Page was 59. You're making me like I literally want to I literally want to look up this game and see uh, how like was he was it like, okay because like Gordy Howe. In, in talking about <laughs> hockey came back and played a couple of games in his like fifties after a couple of years off or something to that effect. Like, I mean, like was he pitching regularly until no. he was 59? No, no, no. That's okay. exactly what this was. This was a victory lap, but he holds the okay. record. Uh, and he, and he did pitch. It wasn't an, it wasn't like it was a, a fake pitch. This wasn't throwing out the first pitch. He pitched, he yeah. pitched innings. He satchel page once, once struck out 19 players in one game which is just extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, he was so good that regularly for barnstorming games, which remember that, uh, you know, a big part of it is just being entertaining, right? He would 
uh deliberately load the bases like so he would he would pitch to get people on base then tell his fielders to go sit down and then strike out the next three batters to end the inning just to show off oh my i love that so much well you like like i was still you know aside from a backflip you know into home i was having a hard time picturing the kinds of things you would do at a barnstorming game and that that kind of that puts it in much clearer perspective i that's i love that right it's so good Um, i love that so much there's a player called josh gibson he in 1945 was considered the best black player uh in the game and was regularly uh compared favorably against major league players like better than most major league players to be honest with you he regularly hit for over 500 feet uh for home runs most people aren't going to care, but I know you will. His career average was 362, his batting average. His best season in 1933, he hit 467. That's dumb. So that's, that's, okay, wait, 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 wait. I have, I, have a, I have a baseball nerd point of clarification. Yeah. In reading that book, I found out that at one point, and maybe this was much earlier on, but at one point in I think the late 1800s, um, it used to be that a walk counted as a hit which would inflate your average a little bit uh that i couldn't I'm tell assuming, you i'm assuming by the 40s that was not the case though i don't think so i i don't think I'm, that counted uh, you're gonna have to look that one up i couldn't tell you for sure anyways just to clarify for anyone who doesn't care about baseball first of all i apologize deeply um you know th- this uh, this episode's <laughs> for me um <laughs> second of all like I, I, I don't know. I would say the average major league player right now is hitting 230, 250. Like, yeah. Like it's probably gone down. It used to be that like, like average was 260. Pretty good was 280. And you started being considered like an elite hitter when you were hitting over 300. Yeah. And so these are. So to hit 460 something is insane yeah it's so these are it's insane these are batting percentages so this is how often uh you you get a hit uh at a at a a plate appearance so you got maybe three chances a game um so basically this one season half the times this guy got to plate he got on base um which is wild i it doesn't happen um no josh gibson was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 1943 It was operable, but he chose not to have the operation. He just played through the pain. My understanding is part of that is just not really being able to afford proper care to make it happen. Right. Uh, In 1947, he died of a stroke at age 35. He was a major candidate for playing in the major leagues, but uh, and I think if on I think if it was about merit alone and if he was healthy, he probably would have been wanted over uh jackie but um yeah he wasn't well enough uh that comes back to that standard of care that we were talking about right um yeah Yeah. really tragic just just absolutely tragic for sure the last one i wanted to tell you about is uh hank aaron maybe you've heard of hank aaron Mm, i know a henry aaron i don't know about (laughs) a hank aaron hank aaron is one of the um best baseball players of all time i don't think that's a controversial statement at all he is his main the the accomplishment he's best known for is he's the player who broke babe ruth's uh career uh home run record 
Uh, it had stood for a long time at 714 for Babe Ruth. Over 23 seasons in the major leagues, Hank Aaron hit 755 home runs. Uh, it was a big jump when that happened. As I said, 23 seasons, 1954 to 1976. But Hank Aaron's first professional season was in 1952 with the Indianapolis Clowns, who were uh, one of the last Negro League teams. The Clowns stuck around, uh, I think, into the 60s, essentially still barnstorming without a league. Uh, They were also the first team to... Uh, field uh, female players professionally, uh, but like it was, it, it turned into a very like gimmicky thing uh, towards the end. Hank Aaron, one of one of the greatest MLB players of all time, he started out in the Negro Leagues. Hank Aaron just died a couple of months ago, uh, January twenty second. Yeah, the idea that you know somebody could have started out their career uh, in the Negro Leagues. Uh, you know, still being alive a couple months ago to finally see Negro League Baseball make it into the Hall of Fame. It's, uh, I don't know, it, it, it all feels a lot older um, than that to me until until you draw that straight line of, of one man's life, you know? Yeah. It's a little yeah, weird. It is. It is a little weird. Yeah. But it's, I mean, that's that's also, I mean, I feel like that's also a a sports thing it's so hard to so much of what you know about a sports team is is kind of what you know from the time you're five or six until until present day and so mm-hmm. yeah i do think it's and, and it, it was it's it was great and you've seen in the early part of of like this major league season a bunch of teams you know pay tribute to hank aaron and it's yeah, I think it's I think it's great to kind of have that history brought brought back and and have people reminded that that yeah, it, it was not that long ago that the leagues were segregated. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's that's Negro League baseball for you. You know, maybe maybe a little bit heavier than a couple of people were expecting, but you know, that's that that is baseball. Baseball is very American and because of how American uh, it's been made, you know, the, the country is kind of reflected in the game to some extent, which is a, a really interesting thing to look at from, you know, more of a historical perspective rather than a, uh, necessarily a sports perspective. Um, yeah, you know, it can, it can feel a little bit fraught, but I, I think as a, as a lens to talk about some of these issues, it, it makes for, for an interesting one. Um, the, the names, the, the characters that are involved all like individually, extremely interesting, but, you know, the, the course of all of that really, really sums up that era, uh, you know, quite neatly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, as you said, I mean, like, it's hard to, I don't know if there is any footage of, of those leagues that, that exists, but I mean, I, I do think, yeah, that's the unfortunate part is, is, is kind of the, the only part that's left is, is, you know, the fun names and the, the ridiculous team names and you don't. I don't know. How could you, you, there's really no way to capture the excitement of, of a Negro league game, yeah. you know, the way, the way that it was played. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. All right. Well, I, I think that's as, uh, as good a place to leave it as any, uh, thanks so much for coming on today. I, I really enjoyed this one. This was a, this is a good topic. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Modern interest in Negro League Baseball has led to some measure of preservation. 
There's some video footage and photography and physical artifacts, and through careful reconstruction using newspaper box scores, we have partial statistics for some players in some seasons. While much of the information has been lost, it's encouraging to see the Negro Leagues finally recognized for both their historical importance and for their athletic accomplishments. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I hadn't written down the name of the owner boxed out of buying the Phillies by Kennesaw Mountain Landis in 1942 for planning to hire black players. That was Bill Veek, who later would go on to purchase Cleveland. He's the owner who signed Larry Doby, the second black player in the modern era of Major League Baseball, and the first in the American League. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.